Hey y'all, it's Kelsey. Welcome to episode six of Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit. It's giving June, it's giving Pride Month, it's giving Big Gay, it's giving Who Needs Sleep Anyways, it's giving, wait, I'm tired and I do need sleep anyways, it's giving over-caffeinated and overstimulated and overwhelmed with opportunities to show up for each other. So keep going, queers and loved ones. It's giving play dates. It's giving the new Kylie Minogue song that reminds us that Kylie Minogue is the gay anthem writer we all deserve. It's giving going on a chicken nugget diet. It's giving love poems about each other and the things that we're growing. June! June, 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 June. Yes, we made it. Okay, that was a good start. A nice little amuse-bouche for our time together today. Here in Kansas City, where I live, Just like everywhere around the world, queers are up to some pretty radical ways of taking care of each other. One queer in particular who has showed me new ways to offer care is Scout DeSimio of Pride Haven, Kansas City's overnight shelter for LGBTQ youth. Housing or being housed should be a basic right. We all as humans, as animals, have a deep need to have shelter to feel safe and like we have the basic necessities to explore who we are and how we want to spend our short time on Earth. Unfortunately, because of capitalism, housing has instead shifted into being a commodity for those with privilege and resources. Among many other crises our nation is facing, the housing crisis is experienced inequitably by young people and by LGBTQ people. So today I'm so thrilled that we can all spend time with Scout and their deep commitment to showing up for queer youth facing houselessness here in Kansas City. Scout Tissimio is the manager of residential programs at Serving AIDS Victims Endowment, Save Inc. She has been in service to the Kansas City community for over 10 years in a variety of social services settings, including child welfare, mental health, and houseless services. They are a 2022 Kansas City Resilience Award recipient and have recently been featured on KCUR and Voyage KC Magazine. She has a bachelor's degree in psychology and associates of arts and is obtaining a master's degree in social work as we speak. As a queer identified person who formerly experienced houselessness, her passion is the intersection of housing, racial justice, queer identity, youth services, and severe and persistent mental health. Having formerly provided training and consultation on a statewide basis, their skill set is rooted in high conflict crisis situations and their practice is focused in uplifting the voices of the disenfranchised and using solutions focused interventions to build functioning teams. She currently serves as co-chair for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and volunteers with her neighborhood association. In her spare time, she advocates for legislative changes in Kansas City and across the state of Missouri. You may also find her woodworking, gardening, or hiking with her wife, daughter, and rescue dog, Chicken, who is the sweetest, best girl. All right, y'all. Let's dig in. Hello, Scout. Hi. Thank you so much for being here with me today for Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit. It is such an honor to know you and to spend some time. Oh, it's an honor to be spent time with. Oh. To have time spent with me? Yeah. <laughs> um. So where are you joining us today from? I am coming live from the Pride Haven Youth Shelter here in Kansas City. Missouri. We're in the same place, just across town, little few blocks away, probably could have done this together, but technology continues to fail me. So <laughs> that's okay. 
So I'm going to kick our conversation off before we dig into all the awesome stuff that you're up to. Um, I'm going to ask you a question that I've asked every guest of the program. And it's about queerness as an idea and as kind of a life force, I guess, because I truly believe that queer is not just an adjective or a noun. I also believe queer to be something more active than that and that queer can be a verb. So I'd love to hear what you are queering in your life right now. For the last eight months, it'll be eight months tomorrow, actually. I have, well, as, the time, as of the time we're recording this, for the last eight months, I have been a mom to a little baby. And she is so cool and so interesting and so fun. And um, I... Think for me, queering parenthood is mm. like so fun. Um, that process is just like keeping all of my family guessing. <laughs> they like <laughs> don't always know what to expect. Like Mother's Day just happened, and everyone was like, "What do we do? Do we do? Do you, are you doing Father's Day?" And I was like, "No, we're both gonna do Mother's Day." <laughs> um, but yeah, I get to kind of like parent as this like rad intentional human being who has this little person they're trying to cultivate into like you know a, a good person um if we believe in I don't believe in there's like good or bad people but um yeah just cultivating who she is and yeah, I never imagined myself, I'm doing this thing too where I'm growing my hair out. I don't know mm. why, but when my wife and I conceived, I was like, I something in me is like, I want to grow my hair out. I want to have long hair. I want to be like a big Jason Momoa looking buff mom. So that's what I'm, <laughs> that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> we are queering Jason Momoa. <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> He's like, he has kind of a queer vibe. He's cool. I like him. Yeah, I, I love I, my whole all of gay this. life. I've been just like had really, really short hair, and now I'm going to be in long hair. Something that's come up in every episode is the the possible that happens when we really embrace queerness, right? Like any fucking thing is possible for us if we realize that there's no more limitation or boxes that we're trying to force ourselves into, and you have now offered like two very different and very beautiful ways that you're trying to expand your possibilities, both in the realms of parenting and also in the realm of like your expression and the way that you are presenting yourself to the world in your gender and your sexuality and what queerness looks like on your body and how that changes over time. So um, that means that you're activating it in a way that is such a beautiful example for your kid of what evolution can look like of self um, and that's really exciting yeah I also think that professionally I am queering the shit out of nonprofit. yes <laughs> I am um not I we collectively as a community of folks who are dedicated to the work that we're doing here are really trying to deconstruct the like top-down approach that nonprofits have and like just existing and demystifying why we're making decisions, um, operating with transparency and accountability. When someone comes to me, just being like, what's up with this? Not mm -hmm. trying to like play this game of like, you're on a need to know basis, but like, I've, uh, yeah, just living 
living out this program and building it together with a community of intentional folks who are trying to collaborate and to deconstruct deconstruct a lot of like capitalist corporate messages about how we can be successful and how we're supposed to show up at work. It's a lot of, it's a lot of work, but it's like really amazing. Some of the things that have come out of that process. That's also really exciting. Yeah. I mean, capitalism and white supremacy just hold hands in the way that they try to control what quote unquote professionalism looks like and what success looks like at work, what success even means. And so that's so exciting that you're working alongside folks to disrupt those cycles that are very fucking toxic and only lead folks to fail. Um, so I love that you're centering real community, real humanity. Uh, so I want to kind of set the scene because this queering of nonprofit work that you're doing is at a very specific kind of place. You're the manager of residential programs at it's a fun acronym, Save Inc., Serving AIDS Victims Endowment Incorporated. And you are deeply involved and invested in and make possible, alongside many other people, this overnight shelter called Pride Haven. And this shelter is here in Kansas City and is aimed to be a space for transitional aged youth with a big emphasis on being a safe space for young people, for queer young people, um, facing housing instability or who are houseless. And I'd love if you could share a little bit about your journey of like, what led you to being so passionate and invested in housing as a justice issue and kind of what led you to doing this work at Pride Haven? So I've been in the Kansas city community for about 12 years in different social services lenses right after my undergrad I came here um I was living out of my car and I got a job at a Jimmy John's it Mm. was a recession and I had this degree and I couldn't work anywhere so I was delivering sandwiches until three or four in the morning and then um I would couch hop a lot and then sometimes the apartment where I was couch hopping was like locked and there was nowhere to go and so I would chill at the Nelson Atkins during the day and nap in the park or like just drive around until I could find somewhere safe to sleep. And so existing as a queer person, experiencing houselessness and having to navigate really difficult decisions. I don't think at the time I didn't, I didn't look at my situation and go, Oh, this is homelessness or this Mm. is, this is what I'm doing. Right. And I don't think that any of us, would in that situation but I mean maybe but uh yeah so uh, it worked in child welfare where many many times you know we're working with families who a big reason that they're having their kids removed or the state involved with their families is because they don't have access to resources they're living in poverty or they don't have stable housing or they don't have housing that is safe for their children um and that system I tried really hard to change I was uh, a a facilitator for family meetings of families who were had just had their kids taken away and kind of sitting down with 
with those families before they go into their first court hearing and saying mm -hmm. like, what's really going on here? And do we need to take these kids away first and foremost? Cause that's, that, that's a really serious thing to do. Yes. Um, and, and also checking the system on like quit putting boundaries up barriers up for these families and actually let's focus just on creating safety because that's a system that once you're in it, they just are so invested in creating barriers and red tape for families to try to have to navigate to prove that they're decent enough to have their own kids or that they're worthy to have their own kids. And as a, as a person who's, I'm um, adopting my child, my wife and I, I, I have to adopt her and my wife had to go through a background check, even though she conceived our daughter in her room with her body parts. Like it's so much of that is wrong. Um, anyway. Yes, yeah. So I left that system because I um trying to change a system like that is can be really self-destructive um and yeah so anyway went into well, mental health it's inherently kind of carceral right like like this the system as you said is set up to to surveil punish and like cyclically punish people over and over right. and over again because as you yeah. said there's these like false fictional definitions of what a quote-unquote like perfect family is supposed to look like and ends up folks who aren't like cis white hat christian like six-figure salary families aren't going to meet those false criteria and so inequitably inequitably this is impacting folks who time and time again are the targets of systemic oppression and abuse and so it's like this generational <laughs> trauma that's just being like reinforced over and over and over again. Um, so I'm, I'm glad I'm, I'm so, I get why you cared and like wanted to be invested in this part of, you know, trying to heal and resolve pain for families that were going through this. And mm -hmm. the system is so fucked that I yeah. understand why you'd want to take a step somewhere else. It's deeply, deeply painful um, walking through that process with families and, uh, yeah. And there are people who are invested in, uh, destroying people's opportunities to, uh, yeah, to live with dignity. Mm -hmm. So, so from there, I went to a mental health outpatient clinic um, and I started working mostly with trans and queer youth who, um, you know, were just experiencing mental health issues. And I was working with them on a community basis and um, experiencing more and more the ways that that system was also failing queer kids. Um, so I did that for some years. And then um, an old child welfare associate called me and was like, you have to come here and do this thing. And uh, COVID had just happened. Mm. And the work that I was doing in mental health before that was like out in the community with kids, connecting them to support and, you know, networking their communities and, and getting them real access to resources. And then COVID happened and that kind of threw a wrench in my ability to do that. Like I was on phone calls for four or five hours a day and I hated it. And yep. everything in me was like, there is a crisis and I need to be out in the field doing the work. And mm -hmm. so 
Um, at the time, Pride Haven was running as a drop-in center. And um, th it's actually a pretty cool story. This house in 1986 was originally a volunteer-run hospice for folks um, who were passing of HIV AIDS. And just like having that foundation of like being in this space that is so sacred to queer folks in Kansas City is a big weight. Um, and also um, that history and where we are now is deeply entwined because save the saving word, it, saving AIDS victims endowment, like they they have always been doing the work of helping the most vulnerable people in the community. And mm -hmm. so now I have this opportunity to help queer youth who are, I would argue, some of the most vulnerable people in our community. Yeah. I had no idea that that's the history of that house. I did, that gave me goosebumps. That's really beautiful that that's the ancestry of the building itself. It's, it is like, sometimes it'll be a hard day or, I'll have a moment and a light will flicker here and everyone all of my staff believe that there is there are spirits here and um there's actually a memorial to a trans woman in the yard who passed here in 1992 and um when we came some construction happened and the memorial had been like pretty much demolished and my staff went out and we were removing these huge stones to put this bird bath back that was this memorial to this woman and now it's like this serene space where we can like just reflect on our history and like the legacy that's here it's really powerful that is so powerful and you're making it tangible I think that so so much of our spiritual power that we find in community with each other is not tactile and the fact that you're living in like a physical space with physical representation of these stories and lives and um that's really really special a lot <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so I watched you you put up a really phenomenal video on um Pride Haven's Instagram the other day really laying out the values that you bring to the way that y'all approach your work there and you talked about being housing first being trauma-informed applying a restorative justice framework lens to the work that all of y'all are doing. Can you speak a little bit to how you use those as kind of like guideposts or guiding lights to the way that you're approaching the work that you're doing there? Um, yeah, so uh, these are all evidence-based values right um housing first being trauma-informed being strengths-based being client-directed those are all evidence-based practices um sorry i warned you that my computer was gonna be that's okay our uh, computers make noises that's just what they do and it's annoying but they talk too <laughs> yeah. I wish they would talk a little less, honestly. It's like, a, it's a lot on our nervous systems That's to just constantly true. be like, don't forget this. <laughs> reminder, um, reminder again. <laughs> yeah. 
So the the big thing that we're focusing on as a community right now, I mean, all of those values form the foundation of what we do, but restorative justice really is the way that we activate, that we mm. catalyze change in this community. And so I think historically in housing services, it, 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 housing itself is meritocracy based. It yes. is if you work hard enough and you have the right values and the right attitude and you want it bad enough, you'll get this. And it's not, it's, it's a lie. It's a lie. Um, and so through the work of restorative justice, I think we're trying to deconstruct that and also acknowledge that like, in terms of housing service providers across the country, there are still communities where the only housing provider that is available is a faith-based um, housing provider and there's nothing wrong with that those people are still serving folks and that's important and also sometimes that means that I don't get the dignity as a person who wears underwear that matches my gender identity of, of having the option to, right. to do that I'm I'm told in a setting like that no you're gonna wear these underwear because that's what they think you should have um, and I think in a lot of the circumstances for the young people that we work, they have joked that Pride Haven is a last chance Texaco. They actually call it the last chance Texaco in the angry lesbian cafe. Um, <laughs> we drink a lot of coffee around here. <laughs> and we get amped up about stuff. That's brilliant. <laughs> but there's this narrative in the community that young people know that they can't go other places and be treated with dignity or respect or, or have someone sit down and say, you know what, I need you to be accountable for how your actions are impacting others and impacting our community. And also I believe that there is restoration for you, that there's a way, a realistic way that you can repair whatever has happened. I think that's pretty cool. It's really important. And I mean, the fact that you named that so many other resources that folks turn to have these stipulations, right? Like oh, I'm going to give you the prize of housing if you meet these fake criteria that we've put together as what means that you are deserving of a roof over your head. And whether mm. that has to do with uh, how you're spending your time or whether you're using substances or in the mm. instance of um, faith-based centers, like what your gender identity is or sexuality is. And there should never be any kind of stipulation between you and having a safe place to sleep period uh and it's so sad that the same folks that like claim to be wanting to create solutions around housing are then like inherently caught cr creating and causing more gatekeeping within and between folks actually getting what they need um so let's talk about like the, the issue in crisis uh, that is houselessness for queer folks. So unfortunately there's this huge overlap of queer young people and houselessness. And for so many oppressive reasons, both personal and systemic young queer people uh, face being without a roof over their heads more than their cishet counterparts. Why is housing such a critical part of 
our collective story of survival and then individual stories of survival. And I see those as like tied together. Uh, and what is your hope for our community as you continue doing this work? So uh, I think, again, historically as queer folks, we've been looked at the, uh, looked at as these outliers within housing systems and uh, even outside of like service provision or shelter or emergency housing situations, like queer folks couldn't take out a mortgage together. Mm. Um, people couldn't take out a, a bank account on their own to be able to establish to a landlord that they could pay their bills. If you mm -hmm. were a queer couple, there were a lot of questions asked. And so housing for queer people, I think, especially is intricately linked with like our safety like the narrative used to be like, I don't care what you do it, but just keep it in your, keep it in your bedroom. Right. As long as you're not out and you're queer and you're outside of your house, that's fine. But it was like, we couldn't get access to housing. And that's not ancient history. There are people alive today who experience that. I know, I know queer folks that I saw this weekend that like had houses where, you know, the other bedroom in their house is my roommate's room and all of her clothes are in the closet in that room um and then queer folks like uh, you know we've always required chosen families yes to survive in community and like escaping really scary terrifying sad situations so that we can find folks who are like us and be seen and be loved and be cherished um yeah, I, I hope that that is what we provide. I think that's what we provide is a, a community of of folks um, for our young people. Um, you asked my hope. I, I guess my hope is that like Kansas City as a whole will come together around our youth. Because right now, you know, Casey is working on this um, sanctuary legislation. And um, at the same time, the state is, <laughs> the state is passing these bills that are so archaic and dogmatic and arbitrary. Um, there's some real power here to change the trajectory for queer folks like if we can if we can intervene now and help people gain access to housing and community and and love and and dignity that changes the trajectory for, for their life five ten years from now mm -hmm. well the issue that you're laying out i want to you and I know about it because we live here, but to kind of spell it out for folks who don't live in this region, we're experiencing this strange and very disorienting and very chaotic dichotomy of, so Kansas City, the city itself lies on a state line. We have Kansas on one side, Missouri on the other, and both state legislatures have been trying to pass these extremely anti-trans, anti-queer, anti-science, pieces of legislation that are coming after trans folks, 
Missouri has always been on this trajectory of wanting to come after and control and coerce folks who are trying to practice any kind of self-determination or autonomy. Kansas <laughs> has been um, a little sneakier in its history and it has moments where it's okay because we have a democratic governor and moments where it's not because we have Republican uh, legislature. And in the meantime, as, as these state houses are introducing and passing, as you said, this very archaic legislation that's very problematic, very scary, our city has been working hard to try and lead with the values that we know our community has and that we know the people and our neighbors and our friends actually care about, which is care, right? Like caring for each other, leading with care, making sure people have access to healthcare and resources that they need. And so just in the last couple of weeks, Kansas City passed um, an effort to protect access to gender affirming care within city limits. It's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out and if that's able to be realistically protected. And it was very heartening, I think, to see our local city council take any kind of step and energy and measure to make that happen. Um, so yeah, it's very bizarre. It's a very weird place and time, like specifically to be living in Kansas City right now at this moment. And what gives me hope is the fact that I know for a fact that the people who live in these states don't agree with the decisions that are being made in the state houses. And the people who have power don't actually represent the needs, hopes, stories, values, and dreams of the people that live on our streets. And so I'm really, really hopeful that as we continue to listen to local organizers and folks that are tied to the community like you, like folks, folks at KC Tenants that will be able to make a lot of progress when it comes to actually getting resources, power, and energy into the hands of people, families, young people across Kansas City. Yeah, I, um, the, the, the amount of resilience and strength and ingenuity and everything that our community collaborators have done to make this happen um, is huge. It is huge. Okay, we're gonna shift gears a little bit. We're going to head to the lies that the world tells us about people. Um, because something that I think a lot about in my work as an advocate for abortion access is how much misinformation exists in the world, in the media, in day-to-day -day conversation around people who need abortions and people who provide abortions. There's just a lot of lies. Uh, and misinformation is such a problem when it comes to the narratives that we build in our heads about people about who they are, what they're going through, and what they need or how we can show up. What do you wish the world knew about the young people that you witness and are in community with and hang out with every day? I mean, aside from the fact that they're like beautiful and amazing and hilarious and <laughs> all of these things, innovative and just like 
worthy that they're fucking worthy of dignity and um I think the thing that I get asked the most from folks who are not close to the work or close to this community is like well do you help them get jobs Mm. that's all that people really want to know oh that's (laughs) what you do do you help them get jobs and it's like fucking sometimes and also that's not the only (laughs) solution to somebody if people are worthy of housing without needing to be a cog in the wheel or contribute to capitalism and frankly right now with the housing situation in Kansas City where rent has increased exponentially like um people can't afford a nice apartment in a safe area that has you know that is dignified to be able to you can't afford to rent what you deserve that's right on on minimum wage in Kansas City right now um the dignity of having a place to lay your head at night is not earned it is just inherent and our young people while many of them want to get jobs a lot of them I, I mean being a queer person and going in and applying for a job is not any oh, you, you know what's so funny Kelsey I was thinking about when I was young and it was the recession and I was right out of college, I called a family member and I was like, man, I do know. I don't know what to do. And yeah. they were like, oh, well, you, this is what you do. You print out your resume and you go in in person, you hand it to them. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it was the least useful advice in the world because it's not how it works anymore. No. It's the hobby of this. And it didn't work like that. You know? Well, it's also not what you needed at that time. And I think we all, fall victim sometimes to the false sense that we know what's best for someone and actually yeah we all have that moment sometimes right like Mm -hmm. that's I don't know probably the lies that individualism tells us all the time right but like um what could have been done differently in that moment is that family member actually asking and listening to what you were truly asking for which was probably space support maybe money at that time, a place to sleep at that time. Like there are many other tangibles that they could have listened to. Yeah. And, and, and that's, I hope what we're doing is like treating people as the experts in their lives. Yes. You know, right now, if I don't want to go apply for a job because I have to apply with the name I was assigned at birth and that makes me want to curl up in a ball and die. That's, I shouldn't, have to do that like it's okay to focus on on just being okay first Mm. and frankly the population of folks that we serve because we're so so low barrier the uh, you know 18 to 24 that's transition aged youth that's also when first episode psychosis comes up Mm. and so I want to say something like 25 percent of the youth that we serve are experiencing severe and persistent mental illness yes and we're not requiring medication. We're not requiring whatever, but you, you want me to go. Your first question is, do they get a job? And it's like, it's so much deeper than that. Folks are not, um, no one would choose to sleep overnight in a shelter if there was a, a better option available. And I think that's something that we talk about too, is like, um, 
I think people perceive folks who are experiencing houselessness as being like entitled or or being stubborn or being like thinking they're better than what's available. And it's like, well, no, what's there, what's available is not always safe or dignified. We know that within the first 48 hours of queer kids becoming homeless, that the likelihood that they're going to become involved in sex trafficking or IV drug use or dangerous, be a victim of a violent crime within 48 hours if we don't intervene, the likelihood that they're involved in one of those things shoots way, way up. Mm. So people are not choosing this. So when you think about like actual harm reduction, like centering harm reduction in this moment, if, if people thought about it from that place as opposed to trying to put a band-aid on something Mm. um, they'd see perhaps what y'all have seen which is that housing has to be the first step yeah imagine um you know needing to gain access to medication or uh living in a camp and your all your docs are in your backpack and it gets stolen you have to start over with trying to get a birth certificate and an id and a phone and and i your meds are gone, so you're back at square one. This is not an easy. No, it's a bureaucracy, and it's it's made to be difficult for people to navigate and to let some people in to keep some people out. And that's um, I got to. I was at Pride Haven a few months back, and y'all have a whiteboard in your space um, that has a number of ways that people can be engaging and taking steps to show up for themselves, whatever that looks like on that given day. And um, that was something that caught me off guard in my own ignorance of like what folks are needing to spend time doing was exactly that, the piece about an ID, right? Like how are we Mm -hmm. supporting folks to have the documents that they need to navigate these very exclusive systems that are set up to only help some people succeed and leave other folks behind? Um, and so the holistically person-centered environment that y'all have created in terms of trying to help folks not just survive, but actually thrive within these really broken systems is, I'm really moved by it. I'm really moved by you. Do you know why that list is up, Kelsey? Tell me why. Because when we are experiencing houselessness, we're experiencing active trauma. Mm-hmm. And so when our brains are going through the stress of trauma, we don't always know where to begin. And so that list is an idea of, hey, you, you can't think of the first step. You know what? Do you need a shower? We can help you do that. Yeah, that's there to just be a nudge if everything feels too big to make a decision right now. And I think a lot of people are so used to hearing, well, why don't you print out the resume and and take it to 10 places today? They haven't even considered that someone's willing to help them to get a shower today, to get glasses today. Mm. I think that a lot of what our youth need is that genuine connection of someone who's really just listening. Like you were saying earlier, like so much about queerness is about community and is about seeing we went to the eighth walk my wife and my daughter and I and we had her in our little 
uh, stroller and we were walking by and these two queer kids were on the sidewalk and they were like, you know, slapping each other in the arm and going, look, look, look. And in that moment, I remember being a teen and like seeing another queer person who was an adult who was like self-actualizing, being like, I could do that. Yes, yes. And that's what our young people need so badly is like role models and mentorships and real connection. Yeah, suddenly we've become queer elders. (laughs) How did that happen? (laughs) It happened really fast. (laughs) Yeah, they think I'm a dinosaur here, which I love. (laughs) Every once in a while, I'll throw out a, are you capping? And they'll be like, stop, stop right now. (laughs) You're right. I should stop. (laughs) And I will. (laughs) That's amazing. I just do it because it makes them so you know uncomfortable that's such an important story though in terms of like um this this actually ties very much to the list that we were just talking about on the whiteboard in pride haven sometimes we have to see something as a visual reminder of what's possible right we need a cue and Mm -hmm. you and your wife with your baby were also a cue for these young queers that they have more to be able to grow into and grow up to and many possibles right there's infinite possibles of what folks can grow up and be and in a world that's telling queer people that they're bad wrong shameful shouldn't exist it is the most powerful thing ever to have example after example of you can be this way and you can be this way and guess what we believe in you and we we want to listen to you we want to learn who you are and watch you become and help Mm. you become um so those are all the questions that I have for you, but in the- I want to interrupt you for one second. Can I interrupt you? Yes. You were telling me about that. And I was thinking about when I, when I'm, when I'm around my staff and the folks who work at Pride Haven and they're engaging with the young people, that is part of what's so powerful in this space too, is that it just so happens that hundred percent of our staff who work here are queer folks with lived experience. Mm-hmm. Um, 50% of our staff are people of color. And so the power and the magnitude of those connections and those lived experiences that are that our staff are able to connect with those young people and be that mentor for them, it's it, like sometimes I just tear up. Uh, no, it's gorgeous. It's I see me and you and I see you and me. And is there anything more power than that? Powerful than that? No. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes the young people are like, I want to work here. I'm going to get out of here and I'm going to get a house. I'm going to do the things. I'm going to come back. I'm going to work here. And I'm like, you know what? You could, or also go be an entrepreneur and make millions of dollars and then just <laughs> donate, you know, or like volunteer. Uh, and that's, that's actually what I wanted to turn the mic back to you to just um, share with folks if people do want to support the work that you're doing, if they want to follow, learn more, donate, reach out, how can they, how can they reach you and how can they support Pride Haven? Yeah. So social media, uh, Pride Haven Casey on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook. Um, some of those are used more than others. I won't lie, but if you reach out, we'll get back to you. Um, if you want to find out more about the Serving AIDS Victims Endowment, saveinkkc.org, S-A-V-E-I-N-C-K-C.org. 
Um, that's our parent organization. That's a nonprofit that we operate under and they're doing great work um, in the community. They house, they're the largest housing provider for folks with HIV in the Midwest. Um, they're, they're doing amazing things in Kansas City. Um, if you want to donate on the website, there's an area to donate. You can check out our Amazon wish list. This summer, we're needing sunscreen and aloe vera. Um, this uh, this Pride Month, we'll be out at Pride Fest KC. We'll be selling a staff design t-shirt that says y'all means all, and it's really cute. Mm. Um, and all Pride Month long, we're going to have a ton of events. If you want to support us, we're doing uh, Pride Haven Pickleball. There's going to be like some bars doing cocktails around town so you can check out that whole list of events on our social um and yeah if you ever want to reach out social or just get on the website and fill out an inquiry and I usually get those and get back with people well thank you scout I am super honored that you were willing to spend this time with me you are an incredibly busy individual doing this big job and having big family and I am just so grateful that you were willing to lend some of your precious time with the show today. Thanks, Kelsey. Yeah, it was really good to just like, I'm I'm usually so in it that I don't stop and talk about some of these things. And this has been really, um, this is kind of uh, like giving me more of a, you know, wider frame for today to just pull back and look at the work that we're doing so I appreciate it I appreciate you I hope you have a really good rest of your day thanks Kelsey yes what a beautiful conversation about how no matter who we are we are worthy of having our needs met. We are worthy of being listened to. And we are worthy of having people around us who believe in us. Pride Haven has changed the lives of people I care about. And if you are interested in supporting their work, I highly recommend you give them a donation this Pride Month to show your solidarity for young people navigating houselessness. I say solidarity with big intention. Pride and Pride Month is not an opportunity to support businesses with rainbow garb alone. We're not going to rainbow wash our way to freedom, but we sure as hell can keep taking care of each other with intention and joy. Thank you for all of your support for the podcast. I can't believe we're more than halfway through this season. Keep supporting Cool Queers Doing Cool Shit by sharing it with loved ones, posting about it on your social media, reviewing the program, and following the show on Spotify. Okay, all you queers, take care, be well, and do something that makes you laugh today.